what we'll do here is just to uh, accept uh, relative reality the way it appears to us and the way it's described by science. And on the basis of that, our understanding is that in some way or another, our universe came into being maybe 15 billion years ago out of some unimaginably small point uh, that contained all of the energy and matter that's in the universe right now. And that this basically exploded and everything that we find now is is the result of that event. And at least as far as uh, physicists can determine, that was the beginning of time and space. So <laughs> a little bit hard to picture that uh, there was a time there with nothing. But that's not the important part. Uh, because also scientists admit that that picture might be wrong. But the original question was pointing to the fact that once everything was one, and the result of an explosion and matter and energy spreading in all directions over all this time is a universe that appears to be made up of, of many parts widely separated from each other. So separateness uh, is uh, something that seems to characterize relative reality as we perceive it. And that's not new. Um, according to this history, of the universe, living beings like ourselves are the result of a process by which uh, this ex- unimaginably hot and dense expanding fireball, as it cooled, there came into existence uh, particles of matter, which, as the universe cooled, assembled themselves into. Uh, uh, atoms as, as we know them, and that uh, mostly what was formed was the, the simplest of all atoms of hydrogen and helium, but that through a very interesting process from the very beginning of the universe, it has tended to become more complex and more elaborate. So suns formed from this hydrogen and helium as they burned out their fuel and exploded, they formed many heavier elements, the sorts of things out of which this world and our bodies are made of. And so, as Sue pointed out, we are made out of stardust, and that is literally true. Every, every atom in your body, other than the atoms of hydrogen and helium, have their origin uh, in uh, in, in stars, and uh, stars that, and uh, the heart of stars that eventually exploded. But the really interesting thing is that out of this homogeneous, dense mass, first came particles and then came stars, galaxies, 
suns with solar systems and planets like this one. And because in the process of that, different kinds of matter were uh, elaborated, that at some point, maybe just a few billion years ago, maybe about two billion years ago, this planet that we live on was formed. And it possessed, uh, at its surface and in its atmosphere, all of the ingredients necessary for life. And life, as we know it, consists of separate entities, beings. And they have the property of uh, maintaining themselves, feeding themselves, growing, and reproducing. And essentially, this is what we mean when we say that something lives, whether it's a single cell or whether it's a, a human being, or whether it's a, a, an elephant or a whale, it doesn't matter the scale of size or complexity. It has this one basic characteristic that it maintains itself as a separate entity from other things through feeding itself and ex- exchanging matter and energy with that which is not part of itself. And then it reproduces itself. So, somehow, in the whole process of the evolution of uh, life on this planet, and for that matter, the universe as a whole, there is a trend towards uh, both complexity and the distinction into separate selves in a certain sense. At least this is how we perceive it. But if you look at the very earliest forms of life that came into being, supposedly it it is thought that there was some sort of primordial sea that covered the earth and that molecules uh, that uh, were capable of functioning with the properties of life assembled themselves into discrete structures and the very first thing they did was create a membrane to separate self from non-self. And this is essential for the whole process. Conscious beings like ourselves could not exist without that having first occurred because the very first cells define themselves by a membrane that separated an inner world from an outer world. And the the world inside that membrane was maintained with very specific conditions that were necessary for the continuation and survival of that entity as an entity. And it also provided for the exchange with everything else. And that that those first cells, they reproduce themselves. And so we have the whole process of evolution by which single-celled organisms assemble themselves into larger units. But once again, we see in each case a larger unit (coughs) consisting of multiple cells always 
creates a boundary that defines that defines itself, a perimeter that distinguishes between this self and this other. And this is necessary in order for uh, it to survive and reproduce and continue. And so, indeed, our bodies, we have a layer of tissue called skin. And our skin separates us uh, more or less from whatever else surrounds us. So there is this, uh, this, as uh, uh, Jackie pointed out, this very interesting phenomenon of going from a unity, a homogenous whole, to to a vast number of self-sustaining selfhoods. And each one of these selfhoods, it's only sustaining by, by virtue of its ability to establish some kind of a, a, a boundary that that uh, defines it. Now, in this process, of course, first we just had cells in a in a primordial sea reproducing, taking in molecules and excreting molecules and producing more like themselves. But as life became more complex. Uh, differentiated into not only those organisms that uh, obtain their energy from sunlight and their raw materials in the form of molecules, but uh, entities that uh, uh, consumed one another. They used each other as the raw materials of existence. And uh, this seems like a rather inevitable thing. But what happens there is that very clearly, now we we have a living thing that is sustained at the expense of other living things that are similar to it, not identical to it, because uh, it's it's very rare for one species to consume its own kind, but they're similar in the sense that they're also living beings, and they're also separate entities. As life became more complex, they evolved nervous systems, sensory systems for detecting uh, changes taking place in the environment, brains for processing and storing information, uh, and uh, of course muscles for carrying out actions, uh, movement and other actions. And so uh, this is basically where we find ourselves as very sophisticated versions of organisms. We have sense organs, we have brains that store and process information, and we have uh, muscular bodies controlled by our nervous system that attempt to uh, manipulate the environment and to protect ourselves. Now, For most of the history of living organisms, these nervous systems have not been anywhere near as sophisticated as ours. They've actually been very simple. And their capacity both for storing and processing information quite limited. But they contained within them certain programmed patterns of behavior that met the needs of the organism. So they didn't need to have the kind of 
thinking process and decision-making processes that we are capable of. Simpler life forms operate on the basis of programs and the programs that developed were the ones that worked and those that were unsuccessful, of course, organisms with those kinds of programs didn't reproduce, so they disappeared. One very basic thing that we see in organisms with a nervous system is they behave as though they experience pleasure and pain, which we can relate to, right? And perhaps, you know, if you needed to find a way to define sentience, what does it mean when we use the phrase sentient being? It would be a being that experiences pleasure and pain. But of course, this pleasure and pain, this is something that developed evolutionarily. It's something, it was an adaptation. Pleasure and pain is simply a mechanism for uh, an organism to uh, be attracted towards certain things and to avoid others. And what we find, no matter what organism we look at, and uh, including very much ourselves, the basic mechanism, those things that we find pleasurable, will lead, that will attract us towards uh, behavior and material that serve the same, very same end as the very first life forms that came into existence to help sustain and maintain us and to lead to our successful reproduction. And we find that what produces pleasure is not the same in all organisms, and what produces pain is not the same in all organisms. So pleasure and pain are intrinsic to the organism, not to that which produces that effect. We find the taste of sugar pleasurable, and that is because in our history, evolutionary history, uh, in terms of obtaining foods, foods that were sweet, fruits and things like that, were very rich in beneficial nutrients. And to be attracted to consuming things that tasted sweet was a very valuable way to program simpler versions of ourselves to, do, to behave in a way that would best serve their survival. Many other plants contain materials that are toxic to human beings. Most toxic alkaloids, most, I think probably all toxic alkaloids, taste bitter and are unpleasant. The reaction of a strong uh, uh, taste of these alkaloids in the mouth is, can be to make a person gag or vomit, but at the very least it makes them disinterested in swallowing what they put in their mouth and disinterested in, in, in consuming more of it. So the aversion to something because it produces an unpleasant sensation is a mechanism for protecting an organism that doesn't have a lot of knowledge to go by. Without knowledge, without information, without wisdom, there needs to be a much simpler way of guiding and directing behavior. 
And that's what we see for the vast majority of living organisms on this planet. It's a very simple mechanism that they uh, are attracted to that which produces pleasure and they try to avoid that which produces uh, unpleasant sensation. This is all very logical and reasonable. Now, as organisms tended in this process to become more like ourselves, their nervous systems more complex, their ability to uh, manipulate information and basically to think and plan as it developed, then rather than pleasant and unpleasant experiences just resulting in a simple process of moving towards or moving away, swallowing or spitting out, came to uh, produce a mental state which focused the energies of that organism on producing those pleasurable results or doing something to eliminate the cause of those unpleasant experiences. This is what we call craving. Craving, the desire to produce an effect and to, to impact that interaction with what is not self in a way to obtain that which is pleasing and to eliminate and avoid that which is unpleasant. Right? This is, this is craving. Um, the lizards that we see running around here, they're very simple. They, they can't learn very much. This probably means they don't have a lot in the way of memory. Most of, uh, most of what they operate on is just simple instinct, programs that were born into them. But nevertheless, uh, if you were to watch these lizards, you would see that they do have some degree of uh, craving because they generate some degree of organized, planned behavior to meet their needs in regard to the things that they do in order to uh, attract a mate. Some of the things, of course, are not conscious and deliberate, but some definitely are the behavior of... of, uh, one lizard when they're uh, uh, in actually trying to establish a relationship with another one. So there's something corresponding to craving even in those lizards. And of course, the hummingbirds and all the other birds and animals and the raccoon that runs around here at night and makes noise. They all have craving. And so these built-in mechanisms of desire and aversion and craving exist to serve the purpose of sustaining and continuing life as a separate intact entity and of reproducing. So biology has revealed to us samsara, the cycle of birth and death and rebirth is driven by craving by desire and aversion. So we shouldn't be surprised, since we are a part of this whole world, that we are a part 
of this cycle of life, of the, uh, of the seemingly endless cycle of birth, suffering, aging, death, and birth again. And that the whole process is driven by desire and aversion, by craving. Now, for the lizard to behave, or the raccoon, or for ourselves, to behave in a purposeful way that meets the need of perpetuating our survival and ensuring our reproduction and all these other things that are subsidiary to that, um, needs to have that, that mind such as it is needs to have a reference point so it knows what to do. There needs to be a concept of what is self and what is not self to some functional degree, you know, so that, uh, so that when you're hungry you don't eat your own foot, you eat somebody else's, right? <laughs> so, so you see, uh, it, as minds develop, in order for minds to exercise this, this programming and produce the proper result, they have to have some concept of self develop. Maybe very, very primitive, or as in ourselves, it may be very sophisticated. And so we have the operation of craving is based both in its origins on as, as a necessity for maintaining selfhood, but also in terms of its functioning when there is a mind on having some kind of knowledge of what is self and what is not self. So now it's not surprising at all to find ourselves as we are. Now just to point out, we might think, well, that's fine for simple organisms, but we're really different than that, right? But how different are we? Everything that we do out of desire and aversion, even if it may be distorted, we can trace it to its roots in this basic thing, that everything we do out of desire obviously is related to pleasure. Some of the things that we do as modern human beings to obtain pleasure uh, may actually be unhealthy for us. But if we examine, if we ask ourselves the question, well, why why would a person have a pleasure response uh, in, in, uh, to that particular kind of thing? We can see how in an early version of ourselves it made sense. It may very well be that uh, you can uh, kill yourself through obesity and diabetes by consuming a lot of sugar. But that's only because modern man has huge quantities of sugar available. We've learned to refine it, uh, and so we can poison ourselves with sugar. But our ape-like ancestors, the only sugar available was that in natural forms. Honey, very limited resource, 
and fruits, very nutritious and desirable. And so it served that purpose remarkably well, even though today, you know, with whatever it is, 10 teaspoons of sugar in a Coke or something, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a perversion of it. The things we, we crave, of course we crave material things, and in its simplest form, uh, material objects that are, are useful to us and beneficial to our comfort uh, are just an exaggerated version of obtaining the, the necessities of survival. Right? It's just an overblown approach to that. Um, We are social organisms, and as such, our survival has been related to, uh, our survival and our reproductive sex has been related to our acceptance within a social group and support by the social group and our status within the social group. And so it's no surprise that we are compelled to engage in behaviors intended to uh, uh, establish ourselves at a higher level, in the, so at the highest level that we can within a social group. We also want to be liked, we want to be admired, we want to be held in high esteem. All of these things that we crave, you can see that they have their origins in, in serving much more basic and simpler purposes in uh, simpler uh, and less complex organisms than ourselves. So you, you sort of see how the behavior that we see in the world, it's not some horrible aberration. It's not some blight or some disease. It, it is the, it was necessary for us to become what we are. The problem though is that we have succeeded. Biological evolution has reached a peak here. And now we have two choices. Either we move from biological evolution to conscious evolution, and this particular kind of intelligent being that we are survives, or we don't. The slate's wiped clean, and Mother Nature starts over. What is very special about being a human being, though, is that this is possible. We don't need craving. We still need desire and uh, aversion. In this, and now, not desire and aversion. We don't need them. We still need pleasure and pain. We need pain to tell us when something's causing harm to the body, you know, and. And, and we do need things like our, our sense organs oriented properly to discriminate between things that are good for us and bad for us. So those things are actually not a problem. We don't need to change our fundamental biological nature. And if, now, if it were the case that desire and aversion, the craving, were hardwired into us, programmed into us, were the result of, uh, were, uh, were a result of us 
being the way we are in a way that was unchangeable, we would be out of luck. This is why we go for refuge to the Buddha. Because the Buddha completely overcame craving. Now, if the Buddha could completely overcome craving, any of us can overcome craving. And craving now creates problems rather than creating solutions. At one time, it was a good thing. You know, uh, all of the animals that you see are territorial and compete with each other for resources. Rabbits, foxes, lizards, hummingbirds, everything. But they don't have they don't have guns and tanks and airplanes and atomic bombs. So, you know, there's some ebb and flow and there's some conflict and competition, but uh, nothing like the scale that our territoriality and our competition for resources produces, right? And any organism, natural organism, tends to utilize whatever resources are available to the greatest extent that they can. And so the size of the wolf pack will grow and uh, they'll kill more and more of the uh, uh, moose until the moose population becomes so low that the wolf population dies back and then the moose population grows up again. And it may go back and forth like this over time, over and over again. But it's no big deal. But when wolves exploit the resources available to them, there's such a difference that when we punch holes miles into the Earth's crust to suck out something that is present in only small quantities, when we have machinery that can dig away whole mountains, and uh, space is a resource, water is a resource, and all of these resources are being consumed. So this is the problem that we have. This is why I say biological evolution has gone as far as it can. It cannot help us. For one thing, it moves too slowly. But the other thing is the way it works. Uh, if, if, if biological evolution intervenes, it's going to mostly mean wiping us out. Yes, you have a comment. If craving, if craving is the is the source of the problem, there seems to be a shortcut that can that can uh, uh, eliminate this completely, uh, which is genetic modification. <laughs> because you know, rather than investing the time and effort in trying to free a few minds, you know, why not just study genetic modification and, and save the whole world, you know, overnight? Okay. Well, in that case. I don't need, we don't need to do anything, we'll just wait, because nature will do, nature does genetic modification. Uh, well, what about, uh, you know, through scientific studies? Well, yeah, I mean, we could, we could do that, but, you know, the thing is, what you're talking about, it's not that simple, and I, do, I don't think we have time to even begin to learn enough about uh, genetics and genetic modification. Uh, 
to, to make that kind of change. You know, our, our, our brains are extremely complex. Um, and the chances of being able to, to find which genes and the possibility of it being any small number of genes that are involved in something like uh, triggering these kinds of behaviors uh, it's, it's, it's so small that it, I, I think it would be like a fantasy, a dream, to even consider that as a possibility. What do you think? <laughs> there's no uh, craving center. Yeah, there's no, there is no craving center. So, first of all, we're a long way from even having any idea what it is that we try to change. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, so we're trying to change something that we only understand on the level of of, of mind and what's mental, and on the, yeah, we have no idea physically what it is that we're trying to change yet, let alone what causes it to be that way and how to change it. But we don't need the point is we don't need to do that. the The point is that we just need to find the most effective way of uh, of teaching people how to recognize the truth which will eliminate this attachment to self. It will make craving manageable and ultimately subject to being eliminated entirely. Um, at least in, in some individuals. So, I mean, that, that is far more the solution. Uh, that's far more accessible. Yes? In a way, you are modifying your brain. Actually, your craving is, is your reptilian brain, your most primitive part. Well, you're in Buddhist wisdom is your frontal lobe. Yes. <laughs> so well, you, you are modifying your frontal lobe. It is very true that you're, training, you're changing your brain. Yeah. Now, there's several you, books. You would uh, modify yeah. your neural pathway. Yeah. One, one book has Change Your Mind, Change Your Brain, and it actually gives references to some uh, work that's been done looking at how meditation changes your brain. So yeah. this, yeah. It, it me- yeah. Actually, meditate do change your brain connections. People have yeah. done study on And and I think that eventually that will be helpful to us, you know, because if we can maybe if we can figure out how meditation changes the brain, maybe we can help it along. But still, that's a long way from altering the genes. So that you know. <laughs> but. Yeah, we can't look for those kinds of simple solutions. But the other thing, too, of course, is that those of us, we reach a certain level of awareness and we recognize the dissatisfactory the, the, the nature of life. And that very craving to be free from suffering, which will make you do all kinds of bad things in the world, that that very craving to be free from suffering which can motivate you to, to uh, practice the Dharma. And so, that can, that, that, because it exists, it's the instrument that can set people on the path. I mean, that's ultimately, why, why would anybody seek to follow a path of enlightenment? But rather that they are Put it in the simplest terms, they can 
imagine a better way of being, and they want to obtain that better way of being. So that's why we're here. We want to obtain a better way of being, which is really what this was all about from the beginning. <laughs> which leads into my question even better than when I raised my hand the first time. So, the, the 12 links of dependent origination have created in it. Um, and you're identifying that as the major problem that we have. I'm just passing the information on. Buddha identified it Buddha, as a Okay, Buddha identified <laughs> it as a major. But, um, can we... Um, is it possible that the Buddha had desire as well, like desire that all people be happy? Mm-hmm. And so, what? How do you? Or I mean, I'm going to ask you how. How would you break down the two types of desire, one being a good desire and one being a bad desire? I mean, don't. Doesn't desire have to be there? Anyway, I'm here. This becomes a, a semantic thing at this point. We, you don't want to make the word desire refer to absolutely all sources of motivation, because and because we're using the word desire to uh, refer to a very large proportion of our motivations, which are, are unwholesome. Mm-hmm. But it is not... A, but if you were to say, take with one brush and say, say, absolutely anything that inclines a person to do something or change something is desire, therefore it's bad, then we would be seeking paralysis Annihilation. I was thinking. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's not that's okay. so you know we we, we have to remain uh, sensitive enough and wise enough to to make that kind of distinction. But what happens? <clears throat> you know, you say, okay, what what would what is a person like without craving? If chimpanzees couldn't survive without craving, what makes us think that human beings can? What do you think? Can you? If you have the desire to help other beings, it's going to come back to you? And so you'll yeah. be taken care of as well? Um, actually, that's that's a pretty good way of putting it. Yes, that's true. Now, what we have is intelligence, and knowledge, we have a capacity for for obtaining knowledge and and acquiring a deeper understanding on the basis of knowledge that we attain. And so, one of the reasons that we would fare better than many organisms without being driven by craving is that we could intelligently discern that some things are better for us than not. And a, the Buddha doesn't need desire for sense pleasure to know that some things are harmful for him and some things are good for him, right? And the Buddha is still not devoid of the sense of pleasure and uh, pain, right? So, 
to be an enlightened being free from craving doesn't mean to be some kind of mindless fool who would meditate in the sun and get sunburn and skin cancer, but rather one that would recognize, ah, this creates pain and discomfort, this is not good for my body, you know, I'll move to the shade of a tree. So, but this uh, intelligence, this knowledge, really, if we go back, the good news is that uh, uh, the elimination of craving is possible. The even better news is that what makes it possible is the acquisition of a kind of wisdom that cancels out the attachment to separateness. That's what we're capable of. So, well, it's true that that once we don't have craving, we have intelligence and knowledge to help us through the rough spots. But more importantly than that is that we cease to be separate and we start to become part of the whole. So now, as you said, what that means is that we see that we are not separate. And so we help each other. We act out of compassion, love and compassion uh, for each other. And yes, that comes back to us in all kinds of ways. We are, if, if you are a Buddha, you're free from suffering, no matter what happens to you. Even if it is something that causes great harm and causes death, <clears throat> you, you don't need, you, you're not subject to suffering in the usual way. So that's good right away. That's, that's really wonderful. You have, uh, when there is no suffering, there is the richest and fullest kind of happiness and contentment. So our objectives that we were after all along have been fully met. You, you know, craving in its own crude way was trying to make us free from suffering and to, and to be uh, permanently happy and was doomed inevitably to fail. On the other hand, wisdom has achieved that goal for us. Uh, but the other thing is that because we're no longer, we, we no longer regard our own body and mind as something separate and more special and to be more preoccupied with, you know, you, you've lost You've lost yourself, but you've gained the universe. You've gained everyone and everything else. You're a part of it at all. And so the well-being of others is no different than your own. And the suffering of others is no different than your own. And it becomes all the same thing. So. And this is actually <clears throat> a return to the primordial state of oneness at the level of wisdom. So we're back to the Big Bang again. What's interesting about the discoveries of modern physics is that absolutely everything in the universe is totally interconnected. Now, I don't mean that, oh yeah, cause and effect, right? Yeah, everything, you know, can't do anything without affecting others. No. Everything is interconnected. Far more than you can conceive of. 
back to relative reality and assuming it really is kind of the way it looks to us and the reality that physicists study. Einstein found that nothing could travel faster than the speed of light. Verified over and over again. And so we know of no way that information can move faster than the speed of light. But other aspects of physics clearly said that everything had to be interconnected. And uh, Einstein actually devised a, a thought experiment to test this, together with two other well-known scientists named Podolsky and Rosen. And it was a long, long time before it was actually possible for somebody to test this, and they did. And what they found was that everything is that two electrons that parted from each other at the time of the Big Bang and so they are on opposite sides of the universe that if something happens to one of them the other one knows about it the other one is affected by it in a measurable way in a scientifically measurable way so and they of course they didn't measure things happening electrons on opposite sides of the universe the first experiment involved measuring things that happened about 13 feet apart but they happened so quickly that light could have only traveled about an inch and a half in that time. And then this was later reproduced with experiments that involved things that were miles apart. And since then, in a number of other ways, it's been verified. Absolutely everything in the universe is completely and totally interconnected with everything else. So this model of the universe from a unitary beginning to a diversified point now that consists of all these separate selfhoods is not it, it is true in terms of appearances yes indeed that is the way it appears but it's not ultimately true even from the point of view of physics it's not ultimately true everything is interconnected and everything is still part of a whole uh, I'm sorry, you said that when one election, something happened with one electron, the other electron would know. What do you mean more precisely? Um, what I mean is that because these two electrons started out together, they have certain shared properties. And this could get very complicated oh, very quickly. You're trying to stop summarize early. Okay. Yeah. Maybe but basically what it is, you, don't have to get into you it. can identify the properties of these two separate electrons and you can see that if you do something to one of them, mm. that is reflected in the properties that you measure in the other. And in, in a way that can't be accounted for by any information passing between the two. Then... then then that means uh, when something happens to one of us, the whole universe will, 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 feel, will feel it. That's exactly right, yes. You got it. So if I slap myself... <laughs> I feel oh. it. <laughs> 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 because each one has its own false feel. You don't have what? False feel. 
you watch Star Wars, right? <laughs> yeah. That's fictional. We all have our own false view. But now let's take it back to the things that we've discovered that hopefully you've discovered that at least we've talked about, but hopefully you've discovered it in your own direct experience in meditation and practice. Insight into uh, uh, into correct view leading to an understanding of uh, emptiness in the sense that the reality that we live in is in our own mind. And just leave as an open question whatever there is that may be that's on the other side of my sense organs that produces the sensations. All I've got to go by is those sensations and my mind has created my whole reality out of those sensations. That's what we all know and see and, and hopefully uh, you really understand. Now, there's a school of Buddhism that has basically said, well, if that's the case, and if I can experience sensations in a dream, it's an unnecessary hypothesis to suggest that there is a material world out there. So let's just forget that. And let's just assume that all the sensations that you experience happen inside your mind, or have their origins inside your mind, just like they do in a dream. Now, that's, there's problems with that. But, uh, because, of course, if you follow that road, then you end up thinking, well, I'm the only one that exists. I made, my mind made this all up, and that's not true. And perhaps we could talk further about that another time. But it was a profound recognition that that amongst the, amongst meditators, and this this was this was a thought philosophical thought that arose amongst meditators, a tradition called Yogacara, and that means the that means the meditators basically is what it means, and the meditators. Because of their experience, they well, yeah, all of my reality is happening inside of my mind. I don't even need to assume that there's a world out there. And it's sometimes called mind-only in English. Or, uh, but uh, without going into that, we do see that, yes, we're living in a universe that's created inside our mind. So, is it unreasonable to say, well, okay, if those people who assume that there is an external material universe and have studied it very carefully have come to an unmistakable conclusion that everything in this hypothetical material universe is absolutely interconnected, then is that not a reflection of the state in terms of mind as well? So we'll just leave there at that point, that if between mind and matter, if matter is completely and totally interconnected, whether mind and matter are the same or different, why should it not be equally true that all of what we call mind is the same way, universally interconnected? (laughs) The time is too short. <laughs> it is. Yeah, but, but then of course you have to meditate. But 
So, so uh, can can you can you very 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 briefly said uh, tell us uh, uh, you know your view of interconnectedness between you and the rest of the, the, the world? Like like this like for example you know from the perspective of the mind, it's like uh, you know my mind is is processing mm-hmm. you know and 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 you cannot read what's possi- mm-hmm. what was going on in my mind. So how is that related? Okay. This, this body I see as just a part of this whole universe of interconnectedness. And most of the things that I would call mine, perhaps as you started to discover with the walking practice that I introduced you to yesterday, I, a very, very large part of the things that we call mine lie in a very vague area that whether they're really mind or matter, but you see that they're happening automatically because our brain obviously is capable of doing most of the things that we give uh, something non-physical credit for, right? What is the essence of mind? The the essence of it is uh, conscious awareness. Okay. As a matter of fact, the essence of existence is dependent upon conscious awareness. Because the only basis for saying exists or does not exist is uh, whether or not something is in some form or another an object of consciousness. But if we look at this consciousness, at first we say, well, consciousness comes in all these different varieties. Visual consciousness, tactile consciousness, all these different kinds of consciousness, and all these different forms within each one of those, and then thoughts and emotions and everything else. And you say, well, the consciousness is just, there is no, there, there is nothing that you can look at or call consciousness. But if you look more closely, you discover that in fact there is. There is that pure uh, aspect of, of knowing. And, uh, When you look at that, you see whether in your own mind, and do this, and you're meditating, if you're experiencing a color, if you're experiencing a thought, two very, very different things, or a touch, or a sound, or an emotion, the, this, the aspect of, of gnosis, of, of, of knowing, it's the same in everyone. It's not different anywhere. And why would we expect it to be different in anyone else? As a matter of fact, don't you assume that it's the same in everyone else? This is sort of this is an assumption that you may have never thought about overtly, but it's always been a part of all of your interactions with other sentient beings, human or otherwise, is that at this level of gnosis, 
but it's no different than what you experience. So, now, what we come down to here is, yes, your experience is that, well, okay, but there must be as many different consciousnesses as there are different beings, because because there's this consciousness that I have in my head, and that you have in your head, and that she has in her head, and they seem to be all separate. It's true, that's the way it seems. But it also seemed that the world was made up of separate and distinct things that existed independently of each other as well. Uh, just because two things are the same, why would why why are we assuming uh, they're one? Uh, we're not assuming they're one, but it makes it creates the possibility that they're one, and so then the challenge is to find out if they're one. And and through meditation. Can you make that observation? That's why you need to find out. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Are they one? And if they're not one, what are they? I know they're the same, but there's no way for me to tell whether they're one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you see how easy it is to get right up to that point. Yes. Yeah. And did you, do you see it personally? Or is it a theory for you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, uh, rather than answer that, let me just back that off and say, once you cease to be attached to the idea of yourself as separate, and since you can see that whether it's one or many, it's the same, then two things. You are both liberated and you have uh, com- complete compassion. Liberated to the fullest extent, or it doesn't take, take that far? Well, actually, liberated to the fullest extent is when you no longer have that sense of being separate. separate. Liberated to to uh, a huge extent is when you have that sense of being separate, but you don't believe in any of the con- constructs that the mind makes around it, and you have experience that that causes you to. Uh, although you have that sense and you can't get over that sense, you are highly suspicious of its validity. Okay. Thank you. All right. Well, you're welcome. Another fun discussion. (laughs) (laughs) It always seems like it's 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, thank you very much, and let's stop here for tonight. Uh, we'll see what comes up tomorrow. So take uh, take about ten minutes to uh, stretch and. Uh